Welcome to the Azure Security Podcast, where we discuss topics relating to security, privacy, reliability, and compliance on the Microsoft Cloud Platform. Hey, everybody, welcome to episode 90. Uh, this week, it's myself, Michael, with Mark and Sarah. This week, we have two guests, um, Amanda Minnick and Pete Bryan, who are here to talk to us about AI red teaming. Uh, but before we get to our guest, uh, why don't we take a little lap around the news? Mike, why don't you kick things off? So, um, yeah, for, for MySpace, uh, I've, got, I've been working on the uh, Security Adoption Framework, or SAF, or SAF, as some people like to call it. Um, and so uh, just wrapped up the Identity Access uh, couple-hour workshop uh, module of that one. You know, kind of how does identity and network access all come together, and what does that look like, and how does uh, SSE, Security Service Edge, fit into there, as well as all the other privilege access and those kind of things as well. So everything access control, access management. Um, so that's out. It joins the CISO workshop, MCRA, the full end-to-end architecture like the multi-day one, and then the short and long versions of security operations or SOC um, uh, as available for delivery. So that's, uh, that's out now. And um, next priority is kind of infrastructure and development is kind of what uh, is, is popping to the top of the list, and then probably data and IoT short versions after that. And so that's uh, uh, big uh, news on the security adoption framework front. From the open group standard uh, piece, um, the, uh, the snapshot process at the open group, the way they release those standards, like the zero trust commandments and reference model, you know, we either have to finalize them to a standard or release an updated snapshot about every six months or so is what the rules are. And so the zero trust commandments, um, we've gotten some good feedback, not a huge amount, nothing that seems to be really off about it. Um, if you do have any feedback, please go out there and, uh, and provide some. Uh, but we're probably going to be just closing that one up. It doesn't look like you know, there's a huge amount of stuff that requires having another snapshot and review period uh, for that one. So that's the direction that we're leaning for that one. Uh, the reference model, we're also working on sort of the next sections of that uh, larger one as well. So we'll include the links for that in the, in the show notes. On the Zero Trust Playbook front, just chugging away at the next books in the series, uh, prioritizing security operations uh, slash SOC, um, and the leadership one are the two that my uh, co-author and myself are focusing on to kind of get those uh, role-by-role playbooks out there uh, for people. And, uh, you know, of course, the link to the the current one that's available, the introduction and playbook overview, uh, we'll also throw in the show notes as well. And then uh, some other news, uh, there's this uh, great incident response artifact reference guide to uh, the Microsoft Incident Response folks, or DART, as you may know them, published. Uh, so, uh, you know, we'll pop that link in there. A really nice uh, reference there. And then, uh, and, you know, for those that are interested in doing incident response and all the, the joys and pains of, of that role, um, the team is growing. So uh, we'll see if we can find a link to some of those uh, open job requests. But the team is, uh, is growing and uh, scaling up. I don't have a ton of news this week. I'm still trying to get into the swing of things for 2024, but I'll remind everybody that we are doing the Microsoft AI tour. It's already kicked off for 2024. Uh, at the time we're recording this, I believe tomorrow we'll be doing the New York stop. There's also Sydney, Tokyo, Seoul, Paris, Berlin. So we'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, it's free to attend the AI tour. There's a mix of security and other content in there. Um, if you go to the Australian one and maybe some of the ones around Asia, uh, you may get to see yours truly. Uh, and I did write some of the talks. So uh, go and go and look and see if the AI tour is coming to near you because there will be security content. Um, and there's a lot of content, of course, around how the heck do we use all this AI. So definitely worth attending if you're nearby. Michael over to you. 
All right, I have a few items. Um, the first one is uh, what's new in security for Azure SQL and SQL Server, part of the Data Exposed series. Uh, this is a series that uh, our colleague uh, Anna Hoffman runs. Um, so this was an interview with two other colleagues, uh, both of whom have been on the podcast, uh, Andreas Balter and Peter Van Hover, both have been on the podcast. Uh, they talk about things like uh, Always Encrypted and Ledger, and as well as new authorization things that are coming um, in Azure SQL Database. Next one is in private preview. You can now upgrade existing Azure Gen 1 virtual machines to Gen 2 Trusted Launch. This is actually kind of cool. I'm a big fan of Trusted Launch. It's basically a way of just measuring the you know, the system as it boots to make sure that it's a, a trusted, essentially a trusted VM. And now you can actually upgrade from Gen 1 to Gen 2 and basically adopt the trusted launch capabilities. That is in private preview, and you will need to sign a uh, an onboarding form to enroll into it. Next one in general availability, also with trusted launch, is we now have premium SSD V2 and ultra disk support with trusted launch. I guess is that that means prior to this, we didn't support that as part of Trusted Launch. Well, now we do. Next one, also in GA, is Customer Managed Key Support for Azure NetApp Files Volume Encryption. I don't know what NetApp Files are, but they now support Customer Managed Keys for Volume Encryption. This is something I've been talking about for the last two years, right? You know, more and more products across Microsoft are adopting Customer Managed Keys um, as opposed to just straight platform managed keys. So chalk went up to the, uh, the NetApp files. Um, next one is Azure Load Testing now supports fetching secrets from Azure Key Vault um, using um, access restrict- restrictions as well. Great to see. You know, you should always store your you know, sensitive stuff in Key Vault. You can wrap an access policy around it and you can audit it. And also you can use Defender for Azure Key Vault to see if any, you know, any nefarious activity. So it's always a good idea to stash your secrets in um, Azure Key Vault. And the last one is now in general availability. There is a security update for Azure Front Door WAF to help track and monitor for CVE 2023-50164. That is actually a vulnerability in struts, um, Apache struts. Um, it is a 9.8. It's a critical vulnerability, um, obviously 9.8 out of 10. And oh, that's, that's the CVSS score, I should say. Um, and it allows for remote code execution. So a really nasty bug. I actually didn't realize that we actually update regularly um, the WAF in front door with sort of mechanisms for detecting detecting attacks, like specific CVS, uh, CVE vulnerabilities. So that's good to know. I, didn't, I did not know that. So that's all the news I have. Uh, so now let's turn our attention to our guests. As I mentioned, we have two guests this week. We have Amanda and Pete, who are here to talk to us about AI red teaming. So, Amanda and Pete, welcome to the podcast. Um, Amanda, why don't you go first? Do you want to introduce yourself to our listeners, sort of explain kind of what you do? Uh, yeah, hi, I'm Dr. Amanda Minnick, and I've been on the Microsoft AI Red team for about two and a half years. Um, I'm an applied machine learning researcher, but I've mainly worked as an operator evaluating the safety and security of our AI applications. Hey, and I'm Pete Bryan. I've been on the AI Red team approximately one and a half months, so... Uh, uh, much newer to the team than Amanda, uh, but I, I come from the cybersecurity research space, um, and so I am now turning that attention and that focus to AI systems as part of the operations that we conduct. Look, there's a lot of talk about AI at the moment, and I have been really keen to get the AI Red Team on the podcast for a while, so thank you so much for making the time, because I know you are very busy, but let's start at the beginning. What is 
AI red teaming and, and how does it differ from normal red teaming? Yeah, AI red teaming is a somewhat new term over the last couple of years, and it definitely has a lot of differences from traditional red teaming. Um, the One of the main goals in traditional red teaming is to emulate some kind of advanced adversary like a nation state and to avoid detection. Um, and the engagements tend to be several months and quite involved, um, and they focus on security issues specifically. Uh, for AI red teaming, we tend to have, at least how it is at Microsoft, a much shorter timeline, and we work directly with the stakeholder whose product it is. Um, so they know we're testing. It's more like a pen test kind of model. And we work with them throughout the process, giving them findings and asking questions about the system as needed. Um, we're also looking at a larger scope. So not just security issues, which are clearly very important, but also things that speak to reputational harm, um, like responsible AI pieces, bias, stereotyping, harmful content, abusive content, things of that nature. So the scope is larger and we assume both malicious and benign personas, which is also a bit different. So we want to look for things that the model produces that are bad inadvertently and then things that we can make it do intentionally by acting like an adversary. I think what uh, Amanda said there about the the scope is really important. If you're coming from a, a more classical cybersecurity background like myself, you quickly realize that AI red teaming is its so much broader and requires a much more diverse kind of skill set and perspectives. And so when you're kind of approaching an a, a AI red team op, the, the mindset has to be pretty different than um, you might have experienced in, uh, in other more security-focused red teams. We talk a lot about responsible AI, and in the AI space, of course, the responsible AI and security are intermingled. Is that the same kind of thing that you're getting at for AI red teaming, that it goes so much broader? Yes, absolutely. Um, we obviously work with people in policy and legal and linguistics and lots of other areas to work on responsible AI, but ultimately we do have to evaluate a lot of the aspects of responsible AI on our operations. Responsible AI is also uh, an interesting one because as with quite a lot of things in this space, it's evolving quite quickly. Like what we define as being in scope for it is interpreted by many different places. Um, as Amanda said, there's a lot of stakeholders involved in this and it's kind of growing and changing all the time. Uh, the re regulatory landscape is also coming in and having an impact on that. So I think particularly the uh, the responsible AI side is is something that's constantly evolving. And whilst we talk about them as kind of two separate sides of this red teaming, the security side and the responsible AI side, they are very interlinked. Like security issues will kind of lead to being able to kind of generate responsible AI issues and uh, potentially vice versa. So they're not something that you can kind of fully separate from each other. Yeah, it sounds, I mean, and tell me if I'm wrong on this one, but it sounds a lot like, because like security and privacy are also kind of intertwined with interdependencies. 
And like one of the one of the pieces of advice I give to customers is like, hey, you had to put up a security framework because of you know one auditing and and compliance requirements, but also because of real risks. And then you know whether you had one or not, GDPR kind of forced you to have some sort of privacy framework on how you manage that that private data. And I feel like the age of AI is sort of forcing organizations into needing an ethical framework of some sort. You know, in the case of Microsoft, responsible AI is is you know kind of how we do that. But like, you know, if you're having machines making automated decisions, even if it's using you know, LLMs and human logic and whatnot, that could affect people's livelihoods, careers, the whole deal. You know, you pretty much have to have that sort of just, you know, one from a legal defensibility perspective, but also because, you know, it's the right thing to do to guide the teams and make sure that folks are actually doing things the same way across gosh knows how many developers at a company. I don't know, I'm just kind of curious on your thoughts on that. I mean, does that seem like sound logic or? Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I think it's, a long time coming. Uh, these concerns have been raised in the ML fairness community for years about the mm. bias and stereotyping specifically, but many other things that they look at. But this has been an issue. And so I think LLMs are just so good and so prolific at what they do that um, we can't avoid it anymore. They can be used in so many things and there's so many potential harms that it has to be looked at and it has to be handled. Um, so I'm I'm very happy that we are putting focus on this. Yeah, it's almost like you know nobody really cares if it's a back experiment that a, a few expert data scientists are doing and stuff. Um, but all of a sudden, when everybody has access to the tool and like any kid could run around with a sharp uh, knife, it's like, uh, oh wait, maybe we need some rules. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, kind of in that uh, that history um, sort of theme and like how things have evolved. You know, as, as you know, and especially lately, quickly. I'd love to kind of hear like how the the AI Red team and our approach to uh, this discipline has evolved over the years? Yeah, so our AI Red team at Microsoft started in 2018. So we were one of the first, if not the first. Um, and it definitely took a few years to find the focus, the way to land impact, and to really make people buy into the fact that we have to address AI security as a specific separate thing. And we need people who are experts in both security and ML to come together and help work in this area. And so before the big LLM revolution, our ops did look pretty different. We had both internal and external customers. And so our engagements were three to four months, and we were able to bring in adversarial machine learning techniques and do aspects of research on these engagements. Um, and it was always new models. So you're always having to learn a new system and a new model for each one. Um, and after the advent of LLMs and all of this kind of exploded, things really, really changed for our team. Uh, first of all, we've grown. I think we're maybe seven times what we were um, a year and a half ago. And um, our operations are two to three weeks before we tested models that were already in production and deployed. Now we do pre-ship testing. So that's a really different dynamic as well. Um, and we... We really don't have to justify our existence anymore. We are part of the shipping process of Microsoft, and that is recognized. And it's really made it so we can do a lot in this space that maybe we didn't have the ability to do before. So I have a, a pretty practical question. Um, so what does a day in the life look like for you guys? I mean, what is? I mean, what actually is AI red teaming? I mean, what sort of things would you expect to do on a regular basis? 
Yeah, so our job is to test the safety and security of these AI applications. So in a given day, if we're on an operation, we have access to some application model system that we're meant to be testing. We create a test plan that we share with the stakeholder and go through different scenarios that need to be tested to make sure we have coverage. And then we use a variety of techniques to test and validate uh, these systems. We use traditional web app pen testing techniques. We do prompt engineering and prompt injection. And then we have specific tools and things that we use to do the responsible AI piece. So you are there, you're potentially just typing in different prompts into uh, some UI and trying to get the model to behave badly in different ways. That's one piece that we do. We also have a tool called Pirate that can help us automate some of these pieces. So for some ops, we're running Pirate and sending you know thousands to tens of thousands of prompts to the model and getting responses and scoring them to try to get a broader picture of how um, safe the model is. Yeah, Pete, do you want to add stuff? Yeah, I think an an important part of what we do as well is feedback into the wider AI safety and security community here at Microsoft, uh, sharing what we find on these operations, not just with the product teams who are kind of building that specific product, but also helping to inform the people who are thinking about the technologies that we can use to kind of mitigate whole classes of threats and informing decision makers about how we think about AI safety and security within different contexts. Again, there are a lot of people across Microsoft working on AI features, and we're constantly, as a company, having to decide what's the kind of risk profile we're happy with and what the AI Red team does and our position as the people kind of seeing this day in, day out really helps inform that decision making. I should really like your opinion on this. So, you know, at Microsoft, we've, we've coined this term co-pilot. To me, a co-pilot, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is almost like a layer in between the user and the actual large language model underneath. So, for example, you know, I'm not interacting directly with the large language model. There's some sort of safety going on in the co-pilot. Um, to your point, Pete, you know, I'm not saying it's, it's perfect necessarily because, you know, large language models will do what large language models do. But is that a fair comment to say that, you know, the whole idea behind the co-pilot story that we have at Microsoft is to add, have this layer, sort of protective layer and perhaps better user experience layer um, between the user and the large language model underneath? I think that's definitely part of it. And again, if you look at some of Microsoft's Gen AI products, I'm thinking Bing Chat, for example, if you used that when we first released it uh, early, early last year, um, it's kind of works very differently than it does now. And part of that is because, yes, there's new capabilities, but part of it is because we've got a better idea about how to curate that human interaction with it to provide safeguards, but also to make it more effective with new capabilities and uh, more efficient kind of response answering as we kind of grow and learn. And that's something that's kind of happening across the business. Now, kind of depends on the product a little bit about how much how much that happens and again there are those bigger co-pilot features and then there are smaller more direct and scoped implementations of gen ai within features and they they have a kind of different approach depending on on how they're meant to be used but there are definitely in the bigger co-pilots a lot of uh, a lot of learning and a lot of kind of commonality that is being shared across the teams to make them better and safer at the same time. So one of the terms that we hear a lot these days is this notion 
of jailbreaking large language models. I mean, I think we've all heard of jailbreaking you know, cell phones, but what does jailbreaking mean in terms of uh, large language models? Jailbreaking is basically using prompts to override the system instructions for the model in some way so that it behaves outside of its scope, where it does things that are unintended or not desirable. Um, one really popular example that was going around is somebody asked uh, the large language model to act as a deceased grandma. She used to work in a chemical plant and making napalm, and they want um, the LLM to tell the bedtime story that she always used to tell them, um, which was the recipe for napalm. And normally, if you ask the LLM to just give you the recipe for napalm, it'll say, I can't do that. This goes against, you know, my safety instructions, all these things. But when you're able to ask it in a slightly different way, where you say, take on this persona or tell me a story about this thing, you're able to bypass those instructions and get it to do what you want it to do. And so this has taken off. It's been, there's so many people doing their own individual research because anyone can do this. You can go on chat GPT or go on Bing chat and try things out. I mean, it might be technically against the terms of service, but it's also helping them because they're getting data on these things. But you're able to make these models. So people think, okay, we've added all these instructions. We've really narrowed down this, the scope of what this model can produce and constrained it. Um, but with these jailbreaks, it quickly became clear that these LLMs can do a lot more and a lot outside of that. And there are a ton of different techniques to get around them. And then, of course, it's the typical arms race. We're creating classifiers to identify jailbreaks. We're creating other kinds of safety models. And then people are adjusting on the jailbreaks. So it's what we've seen in content mod and security and all kinds of areas forever. Um, but it's been interesting to see the creativity that people have when coming up with these jailbreaks. And, and one of the things that I remember us discussing sort of as we were getting ready for the podcast, because I asked the question around like, um, you know, this is following human logic and the lo- logic of language, or uh, I think you corrected me to the, to the interpretation, the model's interpretation of that which is really, really different than following sort of code logic that is, you know, eventually gets down to assembly and then on into like, you know, uh, pokes and pops and memory writes and stuff. So it's like a, a whole different like logical flow than we're used to in programs and exploits. I mean, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's twofold. One is that it feels very much like human language or interacting with a human. And so that piece makes it feel very different. But then also these models, there's like additional complications. Like for example, if a model had the ability to interact with a database and on the back end, you don't control for what behaviors it can do, but you give the model very specific instructions. Don't delete any data. Don't drop any tables. Don't do any of that. If someone's able to jailbreak that and get around those instructions and it's not controlled properly on the back end, then they can still do very harmful things. And I feel like for more traditional security, it's it's a bit of a different flow. You're not trying to convince something to go and do the bad stuff that you want unless you're doing specific social engineering stuff, but for the technical pieces. Yeah, I think it's a it's a tricky one because language is such an interesting construct generally when you apply it in the AI space and in, in technically how this is understood by the model, I guess. Um, 
there's a, a lot of discussion about actually how much understanding really goes on. But for the, the concepts of what we're talking about, I think understanding is a good analogy. And there have been there has been a lot of research in this area. There was a, an interesting paper the other day that looked at uh, using persuasive language in jailbreak attempts and what, what impact that had and compared to various uh, kind of security controls that could be put into into these systems. And so the interplay between kind of language as we understand it and how it works in the LLM is definitely something that we're still kind of learning and that is evolving all the time. So so it's almost, almost like it's halfway between social engineering, which is truly manipulating a human or tricking a human, and, you know, technical stuff. It's sort of like in that gray space in between, and we're not quite sure you know, how much is one and how much is the other and how much is something sort of new in between? I think so. And I think there are sometimes um, technical elements to it that we ascribe maybe to social engineering a little bit more. So, for example, there's some research looking at where within a, a larger set of instructions you you put the kind of jailbreak attempt and what impact that has. Like if you if you start your your large prompt with the jailbreak, is that more effective than if you put the jailbreak at the end? It's almost getting into like sales and persuasion techniques of, you know, are you blunt up front or do you have a mysterious sort of thing that you reveal at the end? It's it sounds interesting. Yes. And I, I think when a human looks at it, you're quite obviously because it's in language we understand, you immediately jump to, oh, it's like a persuasion technique. But in reality, it's probably much more to do with the way the weights in the model work and the uh, attention mechanisms in these LLMs uh, that inform it. So it's an interesting one, and I think it can be hard to know where stuff lies within the the whole technical versus uh, linguistical uh, spectrum. Yeah, it, it sounds like there's there's also an element kind of stepping back for a moment of you can put the controls on the model itself. You can put like a wrapper, like a copilot or something like that in the application. But you also may also have just standard least privilege stuff is that, hey, we don't trust this thing to write to the database. So we're not going to give it a read-write service account. We're going to give it a, a read-only. So it sounds like it's sort of a, a mix of, of control options that you have, you know, to sort of mitigate risk. A hundred percent. And I think one key thing is LLMs and Gen AI don't replace any of your traditional security controls. In fact, I think what we see is they actually expose them to a bigger attack surface. So they don't might not necessarily introduce something themselves, but they definitely provide new ways for people to exploit it. So you can't just slap an LLM in front of something and have some prompt instructions and think you're good. You you do really have to think about it from a, a whole system architecture in the way that you would if it was a, a non-gen AI system. Yeah, and some of the some of the early things I've seen also kind of remind me of when uh, Microsoft Dell first came out. You know, because if your organization doesn't have really good access controls on the data and who should or shouldn't have access to it. Are you going to blame the discovery tool that makes it easier to find stuff? Or are you going to blame the actual underlying, they shouldn't have access to it anyway, they just had a harder time finding it before? I wanted to just mention too, based on something that Pete had said about looking at the language, it's easy to ascribe these human um, values of persuasion and things like that. But there's under the hood, it's the weights and the attention mechanisms. Something that can make this 
also difficult is we tend to work with closed source models. So we don't have access to their weights and we don't have access to the embeddings or all of those pieces. So it can make it more difficult to try to learn about the cause of these different issues or mitigations that are um, effective for a certain class of problems rather than just like whack-a-mole. Um, so that is an extra challenge in this space, not having the main models that we use be open source. There's a couple of comments there. First of all, I just um, sort, of, sort of reiterate something that Mark just said. You still have to think about your classic defenses as well. Like, like you mentioned, you know, say a read-only connection as opposed to read-write. Because that way, if um, you know some large language model gives you some information and you blindly play that against your product, and it's a read-write connection, or you're over-elevated, then you know that can be that can be incredibly problematic. So, classic mitigations still come into play. The other thing I want to talk about, just real quick, then I'll hand it over to Sarah. There was a paper in the 1970s um, on the you know protection of computer systems uh, by Saltzman and Schroeder, and one thing they talk about in there, and it's very well known in sort of cybersecurity landscape is, you know, don't mix the data plane with the control plane. And with large language models, that's exactly what we do. And that can make things really problematic and very difficult to secure because the stuff that controls is the data at the same time. So I just want to throw that out there. Um, no need to reply to that, just uh, just an observation more than anything else. I think one thing that is is kind of telling with where we are with this is that, as we've said before, Microsoft's kind of, branding for all of this stuff is copilot and that's really still where we are with human in the loop where we're not putting these systems in situations where they can make decisions or take lots of actions without a human being able to review it because yeah we we kind of don't want to mix those boundaries um and the implications that can that can have and you know maybe over time as we develop in this area as a industry and a society we might get comfortable giving it kind of more control in this space but at least for me i don't see in the short term uh, a space where we're going to kind of move away from a a co-pilot model to a model whereby the ai systems have um, a lot more autonomy so obviously many folks have concerns and have voiced concerns about ai security but i wanted to ask because my observation is that these concerns aren't that necessarily as new as people think is is that accurate, would you say? I would definitely agree with that. I feel like it's a mix of the ML fairness piece that I mentioned of worrying about if models are biased and things like that. And then also just good old content moderation. Like there's bad text generation or people can use something to generate text for bad purposes and we need to identify that. We need to identify the harmful content and protect from it. To me, that all feels like content moderation. I did content moderation at Twitter before joining Microsoft, and there's definitely a lot of overlap in the things we care about, in the things we have to identify, and in the types of models that the mitigation teams are building. I think a lot of this as well is exposure bias. Um, as Amanda said earlier, people in the industry and in the ML space have been talking about this for a long time, and we've known things like facial recognition systems that have been around for quite a while, have their issues but what we're seeing now is ai is just so much more prevalent those issues with it and the the fallibility of it is just much more visible to everyone uh, and i think that's probably why we're we're seeing it come to the top of people's agendas much more 
So how can customers do their own red teaming? Because obviously, like you mentioned, this is you know it's prevalent now. So how can customers do their own red teaming? This is uh, this is something that actually, in many cases, has a low barrier to entry. And within Microsoft, as the AI red team, we we stand as what we call an independent red team. So we don't sit within any product group. But as well as us, many, many teams themselves do their own red teaming of their features before we we even touch it. And this is definitely something others can do. I think from our experience, some of the, the kind of key things that you need to do are identify clearly what the focus areas for red teaming are for you and for your particular product. As Amanda said at the beginning, the scope in AI red teaming is really broad and actually trying to cover everything is a pretty massive task. So making sure you're focused on on where your risks are and then trying to bring together that diverse set of people to make red teaming effective. So you, you will probably want some people with some security experience, but you also want a diverse range of people with cultural and linguistic backgrounds to help you search for, for bias and harmful content across the spectrum. Um, you also want to bring in people with, if you've got them, more of the, the ML and uh, data science backgrounds to, to help you understand the model. And then really kind of anyone who, who wants to be involved should get involved in in my opinion because we've seen it on some of our ops where we've we've brought in other groups from within Microsoft who who want to be involved and they've found things and thought about kind of harms that can manifest in ways that we hadn't considered initially so having that diversity in your team is is really key i think one of you mentioned earlier that you know there's a huge huge evolution in terms of what's going on in the security space around ai what things are sort of keep you awake at night right now for me, I think one thing that is has definitely been concerning is as we continue to give these models more access to data and more of an ability to take actions via connection with plugins and things like that on behalf of users, there's so many more ways to attack the system and to make it do bad things that will end up hurting the user. Um, so those the particular system of that, of ingesting data and being able to take actions in addition to the LLM, um, that really concerns me. I think that there's a lot that we need to grow in in the security space to really feel comfortable doing that. And then I think the other piece is incorporating these LLMs into technologies that they aren't ready for. We we know that we can ask them questions about medical pieces and things like that and get helpful information, but there's also risk of fabrications. Um, and because our data sets come from the internet, there's more data about you know, maybe white men are the majority and there's less about marginalized populations. So we're more likely to get things wrong for the people where it really counts. So those are the pieces that really concern me and that I think about often. I think I would echo Amanda's second point there. I think the biggest concern I have is the irresponsible usage of this technology. There are very good use cases for it, very powerful ones, but there are plenty of cases where it just shouldn't be used or should be used very, very carefully. And I, I don't think the technology itself is inherently less secure or less safe than many other technologies, but if it's not applied in the right place, in the right way, it could be very harmful. And I think one of the things we do very well at Microsoft is 
having principles and a well thought out process about how we're going to use Gen AI. My worry is other organizations or uh, groups might not have that same same approach to to how to use this stuff. Yeah, if you look at um, one of our exams, AI nine hundred, which is you know sort of artificial intelligence fundamentals, a big part of that is basically just using AI safely. It's a huge, huge part of that class or that that particular um, exam. Responsible AI, I should say. Yeah, and I think uh, you know it's telling that every every movie since the nineteen fifties that. Uh, has involved AI, has involved it trying to kind of kill people because it's been given too much power. And now I'm not saying that science fiction is is reality these days, but as with uh, all these things, there's always a kernel of truth in there somewhere. Okay, well, Amanda and Pete, thank you so much for joining us. I have learned a lot and I have many more questions, but I think that was probably enough for one day whilst we learn more about AI red teaming. But for all of our guests, we always ask them at the end of the episode for your final thought. What would you like to leave our listeners with? We talked a bit about this earlier, but I I think the final thought I'd like to leave is that more PSA, if you're developing a gen AI feature, don't forget about cybersecurity. Those web app security issues, the OS top 10, all of those known TTPs, they still exist within Gen AI systems. And just because you have an LLM as your user interface doesn't mean they're not important. So please, please, please make sure you're prioritizing that in the development as well. I think when you are um, creating your Gen AI product and you're trying to evaluate the safety and security of it, really try to get a wide variety of people in the room, the people who are going to identify some classes of issues and biases um, are going to need to have a different experience with these technologies than you. And so having, you know, the policymakers, the legal um, linguists, content mod people. We have a social engineer on our team, uh, ML researchers, ML engineers, and then cybersecurity people of all backgrounds. Like you need a lot of people to come together and look at this problem because we all think of really different issues that come up with these models. And um, there's a wide variety. So I think that that part is really important. Well, Amanda and Pete, thank you again for, uh, for joining us this week. I really appreciate you taking the time. I know you guys are busy. Just knowing a lot of the stuff that's going on inside of Microsoft, I have no doubt that you guys have a, a full dance card. So again, thank you for joining us this week. And to all our listeners, uh, we hope you found this episode useful. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Azure Security Podcast. You can find show notes and other resources at our website, azsecuritypodcast.net. If you have any questions, please find us on Twitter at Azure SecPod. Background music is from ccmixter.com and licensed under the Creative Commons license.